This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. everyone and uh, good morning and we are here for a very special podcast uh matt where are we at we're, we're here in the at the first division museum um and we are kind of in the vietnam war exhibit we are we're surrounded by jungle right now <laughs> yeah we're, we're gonna have some we're gonna have some video we'll, we'll try to put up too that if you want to check out the the atmosphere but our uh, our curators here um have I've created, I've created a nice environment. We're here with uh, um, Kyle Mathers and Galen Piper. Uh, hello, do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll go first. My name is Galen Piper. I've been here at the First Division Museum for about 14 years. Um, my title is Director of Operations, so I handle everything um, with the visitors coming in to the museum and programs and education um, from this museum's perspective. I'm uh, Kyle Mathers. My title is the Director of Curatorial Affairs, and so I'm responsible for uh, developing and maintaining permanent exhibits, bringing in traveling shows, and uh, curating and collecting artifacts for the museum's collection. And so maybe give us a, give us a little background. So we're, we're in Cantini Park in the First Division Museum. Um, how long has the, and um, uh, as Matt says, he's been coming here since you were... I've been coming here since I was like five yeah, so, um, and <laughs> I'm, what, how old am I now? 40, I think. So, <laughs> geez. Um, yeah, it's, it's been like part of my life. My dad took me when I was a little kid to climb on the tanks, you know, and, uh, and now I do the same with my little kids. And the place has kind of grown up and exploded quite a bit since I was a little kid. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. But yeah, so, so I, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about the background of, of, <laughs> Sure. So that's actually a pretty common statement from a lot of our visitors that they came here in their childhood and now they're bringing their family through. Um, So Cantini Park opened to the public in 1957. The First Division Museum here opened in 1960. We were in a different location. We were over where our visitor center is now. Um, And at that time, Cantini Uh, This museum was actually called the Cantini War Memorial Museum, and we were accepting donations from any branch of the Department of Defense of any conflict. So we were kind of a catch-all for DuPage County veterans to make donations to. Um, In 1992, we built this building here, and we zeroed in on our mission to tell the story of the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One of the United States Army. That decision was made because our benefactor, Colonel McCormick, he served in the Big Red One at the Battle of Cantini or Cantigny um, in World War One. So that's kind of a, a bit of our origin story. McCormick passed away in 1955, and the park um, and gardens were opened in 1957 to the people of Illinois, as um, his will says. So it's the quote is recreation and education for the people of Illinois. So we always sort of joke tongue in cheek that we'll let other people from Iowa and Wisconsin in, but you know, <laughs> begrudgingly. <laughs> and, it's, and it's really in the same way that a Smithsonian, you know, it's really free and for, you know, it's so affordable. Like you just basically pay for parking and it, how is that, was that 
part of the endowment that allows you to put on this really impressive collection like that? Sure. So the will and trust doesn't specify that it has to be at low cost, but it's something that we do as an organization that we want to keep this topic um, our museum accessible to the public. So right now it is a $5 parking fee during the week and 10 on weekends in the summer. So for families in the area or even people traveling, it is something that they can come out to Cantini Park, you pay to park, and then after that you get to see the gardens. There's two museums on site. Mm -hmm. Um, The McCormick Museum, the home of Robert McCormick on Cantini is currently closed for renovations, um, is scheduled to be opening next year in 2022. but yeah, it's it's super affordable. Yeah, big playground and stuff too for kids. I know my my kids were all over all over that last time we were here. Yeah, so. the playground is a big hit. There's yeah. also a idea garden that is a family based garden where they can um, kids are encouraged to put their feet in stream water. That's a big hit at my house. <laughs> <laughs> Matt and I have been here on on several occasions, uh, you know, helping teachers um, increase content about uh, about um, especially. Vietnam War in their, in their courses, and we've noticed that um, one of the events that we were here, there was a, um, a contingent of veterans uh, who were here also for an event. I think it was a book. It was uh, a book book, book release. Uh, yeah. Right. And um, what what's the, what is the relationship that uh, that um, First Division Museum has with with veterans? It seems to be a strong one. Yeah. So, you know, from the program's end, from uh, you know, where I sit, we're basically friends with the veterans. We're constantly talking with them, um, getting to know their stories, and we feel very strong connections with them. And it goes beyond just um, that a formal work. You know, we're a lot of times we're talking to them, how's your wife doing? How's your health? You know, all of those things. Um, and we work with veterans groups. So there is the Society for First Infantry Division veterans, and we will work with them, attend their conferences. Kyle has a special relationship with the veterans because of his line of work of the storytelling. Yeah, the, the veterans are our largest stakeholders uh, by far, I would say. I mean, we, uh, we try to collect directly from the veteran rather than their family because they have, you know, they know their story the best, they know their history the best and uh, can tell us the most about their artifacts so we can, we can share that uh, properly. Um, and we, we try to maintain a good relationship until their story uh, is true as, as they see it as possible. The staff kind of sets the context for you know, their experience, but we try to let them tell their story uh, in their own words. Um, so yeah, a lot of veterans uh, enjoy coming here and they feel that this is a place where they can freely express themselves through their donations and through the exhibits and oral histories um, in ways that they haven't before. I mean, we've done interviews and they've confessed that they've said things they haven't even told their families. So, you know, when their families come to see a new exhibit opening, they're like, oh, well, you know, you never told me this or, or we didn't know that. And, and so um, even for some veterans, they've, they've said it's even therapeutic to finally share their story and uh, tell what their experience was like. So we've got a very close and and personal relationship with a lot of veterans. We're also super lucky. Um, There's a lot of veterans in the Chicago area, and many choose to volunteer here with us. So we'll have veterans at our... As docents? Docents and at the kiosk. So it's great that they can um, share their story in small settings. You know, it, it's not a formal tour all the all the time, but it, it's nice that they can be here at our kiosk. They are giving school tours as docents 
or even um, we have a veteran speaker bureau. So we sort of vet the veteran um, to make sure that it's content appropriate for the grade level that they're going to speak to. And we'll make those arrangements because it is hard for teachers and administrators at schools to find the veterans and make sure mm-hmm. that it's it's a worthwhile story or maybe not worthwhile, but age-appropriate story sure. for that grade. In uh, the, I'm going to say category, but the, the generation of veterans changes over time. So, uh, you know, when you take some photos or videos of the gallery, you'll notice that the World War II section is by far the largest. And it's because when this museum, this building was built in the early 90s, World War II veterans were our main stakeholder. You know, they were comfortable at that time sharing their stories and donating. And so they had the most influence when the museum mm-hmm. was built. Now that's no longer the case. And Vietnam veterans are now kind of our, our uh, largest donors, our, our biggest stakeholders, mm-hmm. um, because they've you know gotten to the age where they feel comfortable talking about it and donating their artifacts and sharing those things with us and, and with the public and their families. So that that could influence potentially, like as you move forward in the future, like how the museum like shifts and the focus of it and things like that. I mean, um, you, you you mentioned the World War II being like kind of the largest. I mean, unless you're going to, you can't really build another building necessarily, but like it, would that potentially influence like what you focus on or feature um, in terms of exhibits? Yeah. Um, when, when rotating out artifacts, uh, I think our World War II collection is still the largest, but now we're seeing far more Vietnam era donations than World War One or World War II donations. And they're coming directly from the veterans. So that allows us to tell more stories, wider mm-hmm. stories, and rotate artifacts in and out of the permanent exhibits more often. In 2017, this museum closed for 18 months to do a redesign, a remodel. Um, some of it wasn't attractive at all for the visitor, you know, HVAC work, LED upgrades, that type of stuff. But this Vietnam gallery saw some significant work. So when it was built in 92, um, there were fewer artifact cases because Mm -hmm. we had less to show. Veterans weren't ready to let go of their treasured, um, we call them artifacts, but their treasure, their uniforms, their things that they brought home. Um, The the artifacts that really tell the stories, they weren't ready to to hand those over quite yet for our museum and for our display. So we had to create a gallery space that we could do storytelling without those artifacts. And then when we did this redesign in 2017, we had this wonderful opportunity to add in more exhibit cases that you'll see. Um, they're, they're really versatile exhibit cases, so we can do quite a bit with them um, and, and tell many stories within these um, new added cases. You, you mentioned before the, um, some of the oral histories or so the interviews that you've done with uh, um, some of the veterans. Do you have... Um, uh, an, an, an active um, uh, oral history project is it is it ad hoc uh, how does that how does that work at the museum yeah so we have kind of two uh, styles of oral histories one is either just a recording or over the phone that our research historian does with veterans and those are mostly for research and collection purposes however we also have our soldier stories program which was started in 2017 after the redesign um and that's where we hire, we have uh, professional uh, interviewers and, and recording crew will sit down with a select number of veterans every year and they'll go through and ask questions and do an interview depending on you know, how long they serve from an hour to two hours. And then we'll edit down that interview and really curate it to have maybe um, four to, to six segments that are about 90 seconds to 
to three minutes long snippets that the visitor can sit down um, at a, a large kiosk, see the veteran, and then you know pick a story to listen to. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's you know another way that we allow the veteran to tell their story directly to the public. So we have those snippets, but then we also edit the full interview, however long it is, and we're making those available on our website. So if visitors are interested, they can look at them, or those are more geared towards researchers who want to get a, a bigger picture. Um, but we do about five a year, and so I'm actually uh, setting up this year's recordings that we'll do in October and November. These are a key tool that our museum uses to connect the visitor with um, the veteran. Um, veterans look at, like everybody. You know, veterans can age in range, in gender, in ethnicity. And so they could be your neighbor, they could be your bus driver, they could be, um, you know, your financial advisor. can be anyone in your life, but it's hard to walk up to someone and say, hey, tell me your story. Were you in a conflict? And so sure. with these screens that are... Um, designed so that it appears like you're having a conversation with a veteran, um, it affords us the ability to sort of close that civilian military gap so that they have the the one-on-one conversation mm-hmm. is what we're trying to replicate. Um, and so some of those com- some of those interviews really are deep. I mean, they are emotional. I can't watch some of them without crying. Others, um, I can't watch without laughing. And some of them are incredible incredibly mundane. Um, I think there's one with a dentist who's talking about how he pulled out teeth and it's just, it's an important part of it because not everything is super sexy and super fun all the time. And Mm -hmm. some of it's pulling teeth literally. So it's, um, it's a good collection. And I think it does achieve what we set out to do in 2017. Cause as we walk through the museum, we see these computer kiosks populated. I mean, the, amount of like interactive stuff that is like available now for for the visitor is i mean it's my it's it's mind-blowing i mean this it was nothing like this when i was a little kid coming here you know um it is it is super cool so i mean do your, your kids like it when they come like do they, they do yeah, yeah. yeah oh yeah they put on like the virtual reality stuff and they do that and um uh it's 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 cool i mean it you've you've done an amazing amazing job here you Thank mentioned you. Um, mentioned ethnicity, Melissa. I was say ask about um, you know many um, Vietnamese, uh, Lao, uh, Cambodian, um, uh, Thai, Hmong um, fought for and against the United States in 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 Second Indochina War, and um, and many have Im- immigrated to the United States. Is there have you had interactions with the um, uh, Southeast Asian um, American? visitors to the museum or Southeast Asians coming through with that, with that community who um, would have interacted with and who may have had a, a war memory themselves. We do not actively collect their stories. I think anecdotally we can all share that while we were at the kiosk, we had a memorable interaction with a right. visitor, but it's not as formal as, you know, collecting the stories of the veterans of the Big Red One. Because I guess it's Big Red One or specific, so that might limit. We have worked um, with a researcher, um, Hai Nguyen, and I, I can't recall what organization he's with now. I want to say Harvard maybe Cambridge, I, I don't know. Anyways, this um, researcher went to Vietnam um, with a grant from our organization and was conducting these interviews with um, the people of Vietnam to gather their stories about how they were, 
how the war impacted them. Were they soldiers themselves? What were their experiences? So we do have a catalog of those in our research center, but those are not, um, they're not all translated. And additionally, they're not all available. You know, they're not, um, they were recorded for historical purposes, not necessarily for publication, for putting out in front of the the public. But research available for those interested, right? And there is a research room here. Yeah, I was going to um, ask. Yes, yeah, so we so have a large research center, mm-hmm. um, 40,000 books, a huge archi- archive. Yeah. The archive does a good job of collecting both the United States Army official documents um, and then also so many scrapbooks, you know, sure. the photographs of the boots in the ground and really good um, collections of letters and what actually happened versus those um, PAO or public affairs photos mm-hmm. where everyone's smiling and taking <laughs> a picture on Thanksgiving or Christmas. So. Right, the candid, more um, actual actual daily life kind of stuff you probably get from those more right. than the staged ones. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what's going on outside too. Uh, I yeah, guess we could... This is a, a very nice museum, but also the, I think the grounds are very unique in terms of the um, the what's going on out there. So maybe say a bit about uh, sort of what what you have on public display out, outdoors. Sure, sure. So Cantini Park is a 500-acre park here. Um, about 250 of that is a golf course, um, an award-winning golf course, but we have... Um, Very nice golf course. <laughs> yeah. Matt lit up. <laughs> um, but the museum is situated within a manicured garden, and um, we have 11 tanks and an APC out front. Um, there are a few artillery pieces as mm-hmm. well that surround the building, but outside in our tank park, we have a good representation of the tanks that from World War One all the way up to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And we're lucky enough to have um, a helicopter on loan from the United States Army through the TACOM program. And so that piece is stored off-site the majority of the year, one month a year. It comes to Cantini Park, and that's coming up next month, September. Um, and it will be out for the entire month, and it will have um, exhibit displays around it. Um, and different activities so that if you were to drop in, there would be um, hopefully a visitor or, excuse me, a a guide to help talk you through what is this big aircraft and how was it used and Mm -hmm. tell some stories to give it some some meaning. Yeah, that's great. I mean... My, I think I said already, right? I used to come climb on the tanks and now my kids do. Um, it is, you know, it's kind of getting your hands on it. You know, it's kind of it's being able to see like how big these things are. And it's it's so impressive. And so where, I mean, where did the tanks come from, I guess, originally? Because you've had them for oh, as long as I can remember, at least. Uh, yeah, so as Galen mentioned, we get them through the Army's TACOM program, which I forget the acronym, but it's where they loan... Uh, decommissioned vehicles and, and tanks and, and aircraft to organizations like museums, uh, American Legion Halls, VFWs. So if your local Legion Hall has a tank or artillery piece out front, mm-hmm. it's probably a take on oh, piece. Okay. And they're on loan, semi-permanent loan from the Army. So at the end of the day, the Army still technically owns them. But um, we care for and maintain. Could I get one for like up. my yard, maybe? Like, is that? Po- uh... I mean, you can submit that request. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what the army you can says. Try. Um, you just set up a museum. Your house is a. <laughs> it's a long process to. 
Yeah, but they they, so. they look they look in they look in great shape. I mean, there obviously must be some serious maintenance and up, upkeep with them. Yeah, we are constantly working on them. Um, they're a budget line almost every single year, taking care of them. Um, and I think depending on when you came at, I I don't want to assume your age, but <laughs> in the original museum in the 1960s when it opened. Not um, quite that old. Okay, but. <laughs> all right. Um, he looks wizened. I So the original museum opened with a line of Sherman tanks. So it was um, World War II tanks um, lining the drive as you came into Cantini Park and through the years, and certainly when we moved over to this location, um, in 92, they started to trade those tanks um, through the TACOM um, program mm-hmm. so that we had a more diverse collection to do more storytelling. So yeah. that's, like I said, you, we have the World War One tank all the way up yeah. to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Right. There's the T-26 that's a, incredibly rare. Um, so there's, there's a good mix. There's also a tank um, within our museum. So in the World War II Battle of the Bulge um, artifact display, there's yeah. a tank that was put here. Um, and then we use that as a tool, as another artifact to storytell the, ve- the veteran experience. Yeah, that, uh, that I, I could say it about every single exhibit. That it's so amazing. Like I, I, yeah, I get goosebumps like coming here every time because it, it's just so fantastic. Like what, what this museum is. It's, it's really amazing. What about the um, so you came here as a as a school kid on your as part of a school visit? Or I don't just remember coming as part of own? a school visit. It was just with my dad I, and you know, um, taking yeah, well, me and my brother. What kind of educational outreach, like officially, do you guys have? I mean, I, we, we've interacted with some of the, obviously some of the teacher training, I guess, to maybe outline a bit of the, what that looks like. Sure. So we'll see as many as 16,000 school kids in a year, a normal pre-COVID year. Um, and now we're starting to see those school tours come back. So we're so excited for this fall. Um, and we'll bring... Um, during COVID, we were doing virtual field trips with the, the schools. Um, we have a history trunk program, so teachers can rent out these um, right. trunks that have all of the paraphernalia of a um, soldier that they would have brought, so Revolutionary War all the way to current. And that is an interesting tool because it has all these tactile pieces that the kids can pass around, touch, try on, but it also has tools for teachers. War is incredibly challenging to teach, and we recognize that. So that's some of the educational pieces that we bring to teachers is that we're trying to make this easier rather than have this be the the subject that they do begrudgingly. We want to make sure that they're well-informed and comfortable talking about it so that they can do and explain the conflict exceedingly well. So those history trunks are a good outreach tool. Um, I mentioned earlier, we have volunteers and veterans that are within our community that will vet and make sure that they're comfortable going into these school classrooms, either virtually or in person. So um, that's what we do with the school groups. We'll also do programs with educators. So we'll do programs where they can even come in for a one-day session, a one-hour session, and then all the way up to... um, you know, a conference that's a, a few days. All of that has sort of been put on hold right now, but we're bringing it all back. Yeah, so join us, uh, listeners. We're going to take you on an, uh, an audio tour. Yeah, um, let's go take a look at this. We'll this test Matt's uh, ability to describe the ear candy for the listener, <laughs> um, what they're saying. I'll paint the picture. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, see you in a second. 
All right, here we are. We're in the World War I uh, exhibit here at the First Division Museum. And do you want to just tell us a little bit about where are we? What's going on around us here? Sure. So uh, we're in the First and War Gallery, which covers uh, World War I through Vietnam. So World War I, World War II in Vietnam. Um, the First Division was stationed in Germany at the time of the Korean War. So we uh, highlight it, but we don't really go into depth about it. But yeah, we're in the World War I Gallery. And all of the galleries here are in what we call environmental. So they're immersive. As you can see, um, we're kind of a, a bombed out village, which is meant to be cantini. Um, right. And it's also what we call notional. So it's not an exact reproduction. It's meant to capture the environment, the feelings, and kind of place the visitor uh, into kind of what it would have been like. To, as best as we can we can replicate. So you start off uh, in the, the, the blown out, the bombed out village of Cantini, which if you look at historic photographs was absolutely destroyed during the, uh, the battle. Um, so that's where we are. And then as you continue along in the gallery, you walk down into a trench and eventually into a bunker uh, before moving on to the next section. Excellent. And you can, I don't know, hopefully you can hear some of the sound effects going on uh, behind us here. Well, that one was that one was close, too close for comfort. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, should we let's uh, as we're walking through the exhibit here, um, we're kind of like in this sort of living history sort of thing. But there are objects as we go that kind of paint more of a full picture about about the story that we're that we're in right now. Yes. Yeah, so, in, in addition to the environment, we have artifact or artifact cases or vitrines around and we'll uh, rotate out the artifacts you know, once a year every few years uh, some just to tell a different story some for preservation purposes textiles things like that we'll try to rest them as we call them and, and rotate in something different um, but yeah we have pretty much anything and everything a soldier would have carried with them used or interacted with uh, weapons uniform items captured pieces from the enemy personal items things that they brought with them uh, anything and everything uh, that we collect, we try to put a, a representation out of that in the galleries. Well, it's, it's fantastic. There's also, looks like, some video footage you have here, too. Yeah, so this uh, gallery, during the 2017 renovation, we added some AV to it, some video, audio. Um, this specific video is archival footage of a Schneider tank during training, and then actually at the Battle of Cantini, so going over the, the trench is a reproduction Schneider tank, one-to-one uh, -one scale. Uh, this one is not real. It's made out of plywood, but we do have a real tank later on in uh, the museum. Okay. But yeah, so we've got to head underneath this tank here as we head into the, into the trench. Now, trenches were hugely important in, in the First World War, weren't they? Yeah, so yeah, uh, trench warfare and um, not like I said, this is more notional. There wasn't, you know, a trench leading from downtown Cantini. Uh, but yeah, we wanted to represent the idea of what it's like, right? Yeah, we wanted to represent that. Um, and this trench is actually very pleasant to how they would have been. They would have been much <laughs> dirtier, filled with water. Water or worse. Um, a lot more rats. Yeah. Right, right. Gas masks I see there behind you. That was obviously a huge uh, part of the war. Yeah, so there was you know, a lot of gas used, a lot of gas attacks. Um, and so ensuring you had a proper fitting gas mask was important. And so we have a number of American as well as you know, captured German 
Um, we've also got a glass bottle that it's empty and safe, but was at one point carried poison gas in a German artillery shell. Oh, fascinating. So we try to show not only what, you know, the American soldier would have had, but also what they were up against, you know, what the what the enemy had. Now this, I mean, we're, it's hard to believe, it's over 100 years since the end of the First World War. Uh, and you mentioned earlier when we were talking that um, many of your artifacts and objects that you have here are from veterans now. That has probably slowed to quite the trickle from World War One, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, we we have not uh, received a donation from a World War One veteran in quite some time, um, and, and honestly, at this point, same with World War Two. At this point, it's uh, children, usually grandchildren. Old, you know, they'll be cleaning out a house and right. say, "Oh, my grandfather found his Footlocker," and you know, do you want it? Right. So. Is that? Um, are there any other uh, sources aside from like either the veteran themselves or a family that that do donate? Uh, yeah, so I'd say probably 90, over 90% of our collection is donated or we, we solicit from donors. However, we do purchase some things at auction um, or online that we find that's connected to the 1st Division. Or we do have some what we call type pieces that are representative of something that we don't have in the collection. Uh, so we do purchase things sometimes. Okay, great. Well, we're kind of making our way out of uh, the trench here. And we're in sort of a bunker. Yep. Yeah. So we go go down into a bunker, um, and want to point out the Hello Girls display we have is one of the new ones we put in once we adopted a new mission statement. So uh, after 2017, our mission statement was fairly narrow and focused just really in on the first division, and that was it, which is fine, but it doesn't really allow us to tell a full and complete story. So our new director came on, he implemented a new mission statement that's more inclusive, more diverse, and then we can really tell the story of all the attached, all the associated and support units that you know helped the 1st Division uh, fight. And, and one of the more interesting ones, I think, from World War I is the Hello Girls, as they were known, and they were switchboard operators. Um, so they were in Europe, a lot of times they were almost on the front lines, they were within German shell range. Um, and they were key to communicating orders and battlefield plans back and forth between the different command posts. That's great. That's fascinating. Um, and I think a really great great addition. Looks like we have some uh, planning some strategy here. Yep. So we, we tried to have a, a representation of um, you know a, a command bunker here uh, looking over a map, and we tried to make it fairly realistic, so try to be pretty dark. Uh, would have would have been less light than there is now, but you know we still need the visitors to be able to see what's going <laughs> on. It probably would have been even a little bit more crowded. Um, but again, if you start to make things too realistic, uh, it can get in the way of visitors learning. Or, or it, even if it's realistic, it might look unrealistic just because people might not have a, a an accurate idea of how things were. Well, as we're moving through the bunker here, we're, there, we're just kind of peppered with uh, artifacts and objects on either side of us as we're going. Uh, and it's just a real, real fascinating kind of glimpse into roughly 100 years ago um, in, in the war in Europe. Yes, yeah, so we have artifacts from every uh, part, well, every part of the, the First World War that the division was in. I mean, they didn't see... Uh, the Battle of Cantini until, um, well, really 
towards the end of the war from the European perspective. So a lot of this stuff is just from a couple of years. And then uh, after the war, during the occupation, when the division was in Germany. Um, and one thing I do want to highlight is the museum has seven Medal of Honors in the collection. Um, oh, wow. So this one is one of our two World War One Medal of Honors um, from Robert Coyier. Uh, and we rotate these out ever so often because we only have seven, but they're some of the most valuable artifacts. Um, I don't want to say monetarily because I don't know that one's ever been sold, but just from a historical perspective, of course. Um, they tell a really interesting and amazing story and something that's fairly uncommon. So, Well, it looks like we're moving into uh, kind of maybe a transitionary film um, that's kinda kind of set the stage for what's to come. Yep, so this is, we call it our interwar film, and this gives visitors kind of a rundown from the end of World War I to the beginning of World War II, and when the U.S. entered the conflict, um, just kind of ties the two together and then sets the context for moving into the World War II gallery. All right, and that's where we're headed next. Let's go. And so we have an interwar timeline that we have a number of artifacts from uh, the 20s, 30s, and then going into the 40s that, again, transition the visitor through that interwar period into early World War II. So it looks like we have some some uh, Nazi helmets, um, flag. Uh, would this have been stuff that would have been uh, a veteran would have maybe from a captured uh, soldier or something like that taken back as a keepsake of some sort? Yeah, most of the um, you know, Nazi uh, material we have was captured or, or brought back from a, a First Division soldier. Um, some pieces we purchased just to represent certain eras if we didn't have it, uh, but the majority was something they found or picked up along the way. Great. Okay, do you want to explain what we're seeing right now? So this is the Mediterranean Gallery where we talk about the initial landings the division did in North Africa and then moving on to Sicily. Um, so this is, you know, the first combat experience of the division and early on in the war where we had, you know, the early weapons and the early tanks. Um, yeah. So a lot more artifacts here, and this is kind of, for our purposes of our tour, this is sort of our, our staging ground or prep before we, we storm the beaches, don't we? Yeah, so this is... Uh, kind of just before we start going to Omaha Beach and D-Day, Bloody Omaha, one of the biggest events uh, probably outside of the Battle of the Bulge for the division in World War II. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk. This is a good stopping point for school tours because there's the large map so the docents and, and guides can point to something that you know the whole group can see. Yeah, so we use this area to highlight the technology and teamwork that goes into a military campaign. Um, the teamwork being the Navy helping us um, get to the battle locations here in North Africa, and particularly in the amphibious invasions and things like that, that we can talk through how the Navy really helps us um, and gets us um, in a good position for the conflict and then also supports us. So um, particularly in the battle, um, in those amphibious battles, these North African campaigns, um, this this part of the war is particularly challenging for, and we lose a right. lot of First Division um, soldiers here. It is 
very terrible conflict part of the conflict because both of the terrain being in north africa as well as fighting against the um the nazi soldiers that knew at this point they had been fighting for years and they were ready for us um and our soldiers were green and unfortunately we we did fall apart a bit um and it wasn't until after sicily that the first infantry division heads back up to um heads back up to England, sort of rebuilds. The first division has lost so many men um, between the North Africa and Sicily that there's some talk about completely disbanding it and not rebuilding it. Um, but they do decide to rebuild and begin training um, for the mainland inv invasion of Europe. So this part does afford us... Um, the ability to talk about those early conflicts and learning and growing and technology and teamwork, as I said. So this is also an important transition period for the division because they switched division commanders. So Terry Allen was relieved and then Clarence Hubner was put in charge. And initially that didn't settle well with a lot of troops. Terry Allen was very well liked. Um, but after D-Day and how, you know, Clarence Hubner directed the division, the, the men came to respect him. Um, and trust him. We're kind of heading down another hallway here with uh, various uh, posters. Yeah, so we have a, a huge propaganda poster collection, and we wanted to put up a few to highlight all the different types of landing craft um, and kind of amphibious landings that were leading up to or supporting D-Day. Um, so I want to point out this one specifically because the this is called an LST landing ship tank and this is LST 286 and once we get into the Omaha Beach Gallery we actually have the ensign or flag that was flown on this ship for D-Day when it landed uh, first division troops wow. great well let's head in there so here we are we're sort of we're, we're in a landing craft is that right yeah, so this is uh, mocked up to be an LCVP or uh, you know, landing craft infantry that would have hit the beaches at, at Normandy. Um, and there's a screen that plays maybe about a five to six minute film that, again, sets the context and the lead up to D-Day. And then once the film finishes, the screen shoots up and visitors kind of walk out the bow of the landing craft out onto the beach. Right, right. And so, I mean, I'm looking up. I see a soldier kind of uh, climbing down like a, a, a rope ladder to sort of show an example of how they would have gotten on one of these landing crafts. They would have been packed pretty full uh, with soldiers as they were kind of navigating the choppy waters headed toward the beach there. Yep, yeah, they would have climbed down off of a larger troop ship down into the smaller landing craft that would have went to the beach. All right, well, let's uh, storm the beach. Um, heading out right now out of the landing craft. And now we have... We have come, uh, come to the beach. So where are we right now? So right now we are on Omaha Beach. Um, once the film stops, there's another film that plays slideshow photos, and then there's also sound effects, more artillery shells and, and gunfire and, and water splashing, that, uh, a similar sound that uh, the soldiers would have heard when they were hitting the beach. Um, and there's kind of two sections. So we have these wall murals in each gallery, uh, that depict different scenes from the conflict. And we've got two in this gallery. One is for June 6th, the morning of the landing, and then the other one is June 7th, or D-Day plus one. 
with the amount of detail. I mean, I'm looking down in the ground here. It looks like there's shells, bullet shells. Is that right? Yeah, so this uh, was original to when, when the museum was built, and they put in a lot of detail. All of the sand is concrete. But yeah, they put in boot prints. They put in tank tracks. They put in shells, casings, um, equipment, rifles, and things were sunk into it to try to make it as realistic as possible. Even down to these little rocks. So um, before going out, you know, I through work, I w had the ability to go to Omaha Beach and it was unbelievable to me that the shingles are these small stones that um, I had heard veterans and, you know, through storytelling had heard of. But it was incredible for me to see these rocks and how much they are like the rocks yeah. that are out there on the beach. Wow. that uh, I think that's a, a good testament to the amount of work done here uh, at the museum because, I mean, I'm looking around. There's barbed wire, DeKalb. Uh, and looks like am maybe ammo boxes. Um, there are all sorts of equipment, radios, things like this. It's, it, you can sort of get a sense of the chaos of the beach. Yeah, we tried to, you know, the, the day after the landing, the beach was just littered with discarded equipment, ammo boxes, supplies, broken vehicles, uh, personal effects, and bodies. Um, and so we kind of try to portray that a bit in the murals and in the uh, the props and displays we have out. Um, a lot of this, the, the stuff is props. However, we do have two hedgehogs, uh, kind of the metal jack uh, looking obstacles that were used on Omaha Beach right on D-Day. Yeah, there's, so those are, those are actual ones. Yep. Yeah. And they, th that's, you know, combat damage to them. And there's another one over there. That um, one is a reproduction a to reproduction. show what a, a what they looked like at the time. Okay. And so yeah, the beach was littered with these as well as barbed wire and other obstacles to stop the landing craft and the vehicles right. and the the soldiers from coming ashore. Wow. Yeah, we, we've actually had visitors try to dig some of these casings out. <laughs> Given they're in concrete, they were not successful. That's fantastic. Let's keep moving. Um, so in expanding the, the interpretation, uh, we re, refreshed these murals uh, in early 2020. Uh, a muralist came out and uh, touched them up. They were uh, fairly plain before they had no soldiers in them, um, very few details. And so we added ships, supplies, men, uh, vehicles, and everything. And everything that's in them was carefully researched. So all the numbers on the ships are correct. Um, everything that you see would have been there on D-Day on Omaha Beach. And one of the interpretations we added was the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion. So it was an all-African-American unit. Um, it was the only all-African-American unit to land on D-Day. And so their, their responsibility was getting the barrage balloons up over the beach, over the landing sites to uh, protect it from German aircraft. So I'm looking up, I see some of these in the air above my head here. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So we have some kind of mock-ups of, of barrage balloons so over the, yeah. uh, Five the gallery. Of them or so. um, and one of the uh, interpretations we're adding is uh, Waverly Woodson was a medic for the 320th. At the time, he was awarded a bronze star uh, for his actions. However, that was uh, grossly misrepresented. And there's currently sitting in Congress a bill to award him the, uh, the Medal of Honor. Um, 
so hopefully that'll pass and his uh his widow has, has already expressed that she'll donate it to the smithsonian's african-american museum oh great okay where are we right now so you exit off the beach onto one of the german bunkers um we have a map that takes you uh, from the division's breakout of Normandy through Belgium and then into uh, the fierce fighting going into Germany and then the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, so we walk through a bunker hallway before we kind of come out into uh, the Ardennes forest. Okay, great. N- another in- interpretation we have here is the Red Ball Express. So uh, the... The Allies were bogged down in, in Normandy for quite some time, but once they broke out, they advanced incredibly fast, so fast that they outran their supply lines. Uh, so the solution was the Red Ball Express, where they just had trucks driving from the ports, from uh, the beaches to supply the, the front-line troops. Um, and most of those were driven by African-American soldiers because that's the only thing, one of the only things the Army allowed them to do at the time. Uh, so we have an original French poster designating that this street can only be used by Red Ball Express trucks and that all civilians and other military traffic should stay off of it. Oh, it's interesting. It's one of those little kind of side stories that, you know, maybe is overlooked oftentimes uh, when when you're learning about the war, but um, it's a fascinating nonetheless. Yeah, the, the combat story is definitely important and, and kind of at the forefront, but uh, without these support troops and without these other attached and associated units, that you know the combat troops wouldn't be able to fight. So, well, I'm getting it. I'm feeling a chill. Um, it's <laughs> the temperature dropped significantly. Um, where where are we right now? So we are entering uh, our Battle of the Bulge gallery, which took place uh, during one of the coldest winters in uh, Europe's history. Uh, this is where the Germans launched a, a counteroffensive and pushed back the American lines, creating a bulge. Uh, and the first division was called up to help, uh, st- uh, you know, stop the German advance. So this is a Sherman tank. It's a real tank. Um, the building was partially built. The tank moved in, and then they built the rest of the walls around it. Oh wow! Um, and so this is, you know, a TACOM piece we mentioned earlier. It's still technically owned by the U.S. Army. Hopefully, they never ask for it back. Yeah, that could be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> but we have it uh, kind of mocked up as to how they would have had it during the battle. We whitewashed it, added pine boughs and uh, you know, a bunch of ammo boxes and, and uh, gas tanks and things off of it to try to make it as realistic representation as possible. And there are, so we have some soldiers here, uh, trees. You know, you get a sort of sense of the sort of thick, dense forest there at the Ardennes being in here. All right, we are looking like we're exiting World War II. So, uh, yeah, after Battle of the Bulge, we kind of enter into the late war, the end of the war. Um, and the 1st Division liberated uh, Falkenau concentration camp. Um, and Sam Fuller, who made, who's the, later on a film director and made the movie The Big Red One, and Mark Hamill, he also... And China Gate. Yeah. Um, he was also a film uh, documentary filmmaker in the Big Red One. So we have actual footage that he took uh, from the camp and then from the nearby town when um, the, the villagers were made to bury uh, the dead from the camp. Uh, we also have a door from the Nuremberg prison um, because the 1st Division acted as the security 
the bailiffs, the prison guards for the Nuremberg trials that prosecuted, hmm. uh, you know, the high high up Nazi criminals, as well as a, a number of other trials that occurred um, after the war. Wow. Fascinating materials. Looks like we're coming on another sort of transitionary period, uh, and we have a little film to kind of fill in some of those gaps, right? Yeah, so this is another uh, interwar film or Cold War film. We call this Cold War Hallway. So this takes visitors from post-World War II up to in Vietnam. Uh, as I mentioned before, the division was stationed in Germany during the Korean War. So we get visitors to say, oh, you, you missed or you forgot about it. Oops. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not necessarily. It's just right. the division didn't fight there. So we, we have artifacts representing, you know, during the occupation and, and, and when they were stationed in Europe. And we have some audio accompaniment as well with this film. Um, and then it's kind of good old 1950s Americana sort of stuff with here. Yep. Yeah, we've got, you know, Letterman jackets, cigarette cases, um, a lot of... Uh, some of the more interesting artifacts from this period for me are things that were made in Germany by Germans to sell to American soldiers to, to sell to <laughs> sure. the, the occupying force to make money. And so there's some really kind of interesting homemade and, and customized things we have in the collection from this Great. period. Well, I mentioned it was quite cold earlier. Now now it's really humid and it's it's the heat is just it's just overbearing. Where are we now? So yeah, now we move into Vietnam, which is the last gallery, or the last section of the, the First and War Gallery. So we're kind of surrounded by sort of dense jungle right now, folks. Yeah, this gallery, um, the lighting is much lower than in the others. Um, pretty much if there's not an exhibit case on the wall, there is foliage or jungles, uh, trees, bushes. Looks like we have um, a Viet, Viet Cong and uh, North Vietnamese um, sort of maybe typical uniform, if you will. Yeah, so we, we, um, you know, we tried to show what the, the First Division was up against, who they were fighting, what the enemy carried. Um, and these are you know, bringbacks, things, captured materials that uh, First Division soldiers brought back from Vietnam. All right, let's make our way through. So this is all, same with the others, chronological. So we go over the different phases of the war, the different missions that the uh, First Division took part in. And this is also the only uh, section in this gallery that we have what we call a soldier story pod, uh, we were talking about before with the interviews. So uh, I think we have about six uh, Vietnam veterans represented here. And visitors can sit down, go to this touch screen, pick a veteran they want to listen to, and then each veteran has between four and six uh, segments that you can listen to. Let's take a quick listen. And I am a big red one soldier. You know, here you are, uh, you know, five months earlier, you're going to college. And Five months later, in Vietnam, and uh, you know, you have no idea what it's going to be like. I was in the service five months and five days when I landed in Vietnam. Probably about the length of a semester. How I joined the army June 30th. I 
landed in Vietnam December 5th. No, I, I certainly wasn't well trained. There's nothing you learn in basic and AID other than fire a weapon and maybe the teamwork, etc. that had anything to do with what Vietnam was like. People don't understand that the times, 65, 66, 67, there was a lot going on in Vietnam that, that we, uh, the normal uh, public, didn't know about. When I went over in December 67, I just went as a replacement. So I had never trained with the people who were next to me, with the people in the company. You know, so you learned literally by fire and you learned by paying attention to the guys who had been in country seven or eight months, because those were the guys that they had been there. They had been through whatever you were going to be go through with. It's a good example of some of the short little clips that uh, we have from veterans of, of Vietnam, uh, and there are several to choose from. We're sort of navigating our way through the jungle. Uh, there, there's kind of various maps, other artifacts, and you can probably hear the audio of the of, of the war uh, kind of above us, right? Yeah, so this, similar to World War One, we have sound effects or ambiance of artillery firing, machine guns, you know, the iconic Huey helicopter of Vietnam was the helicopter war. So one of the more interesting artifacts, and here's actually an archival item, is a piece of propaganda uh, that the North Vietnamese uh, dropped or distributed, targeted towards uh, black troops, uh, you know, African-American uh, First Division soldiers stating that, you know, asking why are you fighting for a country when there's such inequality back home? You know, why are you giving your lives for, um, you know, for the United States? Um, it's a really, really interesting piece that uh, someone saved and, and brought back and just speaks to the really complex, um, you know, social, mm -hmm. social and cultural issues around the time of the Vietnam sure. War. Uh, that's quite interesting. I mean, you heard similar sentiment from many African-Americans in the United States at the same time as well. Muhammad Ali, uh, probably most famously. So one of these cases will actually be rotating out later this year to focus on nurses in Vietnam. Um, so we have a lot of uh, recollections of soldiers who were wounded or uh, had to go to the hospital uh, who interacted with nurses and the key role they played in uh, helping and saving troops. All right, so we're going to navigate out of, out of Vietnam here. So we've kind of finished in one, one side of the uh, museum, and let's, if we go across the hall, there's another, another section. What do, what do we have uh, in store for us here across the hall? So this gallery was brand new as of the 2017 renovation. It used to be our temporary or traveling gallery, our conference space, um, and the, the First Division story through Desert Storm and the current conflicts were kind of crammed in that last hallway in the First and War Gallery. So we needed more space to properly tell their more current story. So Duty First covers the division's history from post-Vietnam to current day. Um, and this gallery is uh, organized differently. First and War is chronological, and this is thematic. So we have the five missions of the current U.S. Army military assistance, counterinsurgency, battle, peacekeeping, and deterrence. And so we explore uh, the division's mission and operations through the lens of each of those uh, missions. Okay, great. And here we have a lot more of that sort of interactive 
um, stuff that that visitors can can check out, right? Yeah. So this gallery is far more modern and technology heavy. We have a number of touch screens. Uh, we have four the Soldier Story pods with interviews from veterans uh, through the Cold War all the way up through Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, we have a globe where visitors can see where the division's been deployed since Vietnam and a, uh, kind of a, uh, an experience from Desert Storm uh, from the, the battle of, uh, it's called uh, Fright Night or Objective Norfolk, where you sit in a, a mock-up of a Bradley fighting vehicle and listen to actual audio from the battle. Um, the, so yeah, we, we got all sorts of, once again, artifacts from this sort of post-Vietnam era. Um, we can see sort of the mocked up Bradley fighting vehicle there in front of me. Um, right. So this is kind of a, it's a more modern era of warfare and it seems like the, the exhibits here are sort of getting that sort of feel more modern as well. More tech, tech related stuff, right? Yep, yeah, more technology, the aesthetics are more modern. It's not environmental like the other side, more maybe a, a, a traditional museum gallery, if you want to you wanna say that. Um, and yeah, more interactives for visitors. All right, so what are we going to take a look at here? So one of the, I think, cooler artifacts we have in this gallery is a uh, full ghillie suit um, that one of our uh, soldier story interviewees, Dwight Church, donated. Uh, he was a sniper. Uh, and so the ghillie suit he wore, and we have in there a, uh, a mock-up of the rifle he used as well. Um, so not only, uh, you know, we tried to make a realistic expectation, uh, you know, we consulted him on how to lay it out, what it would have looked like, but uh, he was actually here recording the interviews, and then when we were building this exhibit, the rifle he took out and hung from a tree and spray painted it while spinning it around to give it a different camouflage and he said that's exactly how he camouflaged his real rifle that he used oh interesting yeah so it looks i mean this is some heavy camouflage here <laughs> with this uh suit kind of he's kind of like laying down in some some grass some tall grasses and and blending in quite well so yeah, and we have um, you know soldier story interviews with him and his wife as well. And so when we do these interviews, we also you know encourage them to donate artifacts so we can pair that with their recorded story. fiber material out of burlap bags and you can dye it different colors and you tie it to your ghillie suit so you have a uniform and then you you trim the uniform and then you put these uh, drag pads so this heavy thick fabric over your uh, front and legs so when you're crawling you know you don't wear a hole in your clothing and then you can put pads there you can uh, sew additional pockets to put pens or a binos or a range card or something like that, something specific to you that uh, makes it efficient for you as the individual shooter. Um, then you tie the jute on, and if anybody knows anything about jute, it's just this fibrous material that just goes everywhere, and it stinks, and it makes you itchy, and um, 
it, it takes forever. But at the end of the day, you look at that ghillie suit and it's something that you're proud of. It's, uh, it's a project and it's ownership and you have to maintain it. Um, you have to take care of it. You have to fix it. You fix the holes. You change out jute. You add new ties to tie in natural vegetation. Okay, folks, we're going to head sort of behind the scenes now. This is your VIP experience, and Dr. Jones and I are both VIPs, so that's why we get this sort of treatment. Let's go take a look. So this is the uh, museum's collection room where the vast majority of our collection is stored. Uh, all of our artifacts are on site, um, and it was just recently renovated uh, at the beginning of this year. So we you know, upgraded lighting, redid the floors, um, bumped up the ceiling a bit so this way we can get some bigger cabinets and uh, we can't go out but we can go up at least so get some more storage capacity great great so what are we going to look at in here so we have roughly 13,000 ish artifacts in the collection and like most any museum only a percent or even a fraction of a percent of those are on display. I mean, we have less than a thousand out in the galleries. So, okay. um, our collections manager pulled some neat pieces from our Vietnam collection um, that we can take a look at. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, we collect anything and everything that a soldier would have used, uh, come into contact with, interacted with, carried with them. And so she's got a, pulled a good representation as we've got a flight helmet uh, from a Huey, a Distinguished Service Cross. Uh, we have a number of awards and decorations, badges, pins, rank symbols, um, distinguished unit insignia, everything. Um, we've also got a uh, booby trap that someone brought back from Vietnam. We have a few of those in the collection. Um, you know, weapons, uh, black scarves that... Uh, soldiers war um, looks like some arrows here yep yeah so we have um this is a current donation that just came in but a, a native crossbow that soldiers would trade with bring back as a souvenir and oh, some cool. arrows from that um one of the most interesting pieces we have is actually a cross or a um slingshot so it's it's a reproduction but there is an army chaplain uh, he's a colonel, retired as a colonel, but was then Captain Wesley Geary Slingshot, Big Bertha. So uh, he carried it with him when he was in Vietnam because he was a chaplain, so he didn't have, didn't want to carry a weapon. And he thought the story of David and Goliath was fitting, so he wanted something to defend himself with. Um, and it became quite a conversation piece with uh, other soldiers and was kind of, uh, not, I guess, an icebreaker, a way for soldiers to approach him and, and talk to him and uh, a way that they could start, you know, a more a serious or deeper conversation. So this is just like a, you know, just touching the edge of kind of all the stuff you have. I'm kind of looking around. There's aisles and aisles of these massive cabinets, right? Yeah, so we, um, we do have high density or mass storage, these movable cabinets, and half of this is our uniforms. So we start in World War One and then move chronologically through World War Two, Vietnam, and current conflicts um, and we've got you know every every piece um, from you know headgear to jacket all the different kinds of jackets uh, trousers shirts um, socks underpants as well um, need those yeah um, yeah we've got everything uh, so one of the coolest things that we like to show visitors VIPs guests is our World War one jackets or tunics so uh, 
World War One, before the official First Division patch was established, soldiers each kind of had their own interpretation. And so looking at all these jackets side by side, you can tell how each soldier, you know, interpreted how they saw the big yeah. red one patch. So some were handmade by them, some were tailor-made by local French or, or German tailors, some paid to have them made. Um, so it's just kind of a really neat, you know, kaleidoscope of the, the different patches before it became standardized and standard issue. That's very cool. They didn't give them patches. I was like, hey, just figure this out, you guys. Yeah, they, they described it verbally, and then there, there wasn't really any illustrations yet, it, or very early on. So, like, oh, well, this kind of looks like how they described it. So, so. Make a one and make it red um, and big, right? Yeah. So, yep. Okay. We, I can do that. Yeah. yeah. So, we do have a number of firearms and edge weapons that the division used or captured. Um, when, they're, when we have them locked in a uh, double-secured vault with fingerprint access when they're not on display. So we also have, as I mentioned, edged weapons or really any kind of weapon and some other items that just wouldn't fit in the other parts of the uh, room. And is this kind of categorized um, like chronologically or by type or...? A little bit of both. Um, so it's more... It's chronological and type, just because the shelves need to be configured in a certain way. So all the you know long rifles are next to each other, all the pistols are on the shelves, all the machine guns are um, together. Um, and some weapons the museum owns outright, and some are still technically owned by the U.S. Army and on semi-permanent loan to us. So when you are putting together or maybe reconfiguring an exhibit, how how is the decision made of like? in this instance, uh, some sort of rifle, you know, how do you pick one versus another? Like how, how does that process work? So usually when we're, um, creating an exhibit, we'll, we'll come up with the narrative and the storyline that we want to tell, and then we'll find the artifacts that best fit the, you know, the point we're trying to make or the, the big idea behind the exhibit. So we'll pick whatever piece we think will be, um, best representative or best illustrate the story. Sometimes, well, you know, it's the coolest looking one, so that's the one we'll put out, or it's the one with the best story behind it, or we have the most provenance on. Um, yeah, we have everything from pre-World War One weapons up to, you know, modern day uh, AK-47s. Uh, yeah, we've got Tommy guns, <laughs> I mean, German machine guns. Um, Is that a grenade launcher or something, or...? Yeah, uh, so that's one of the biggest weapons bazooka? we have. Is um, yeah, we've got a bazooka, um, but we've got a Russian anti-aircraft gun that the division captured in Vietnam. Uh, wow, so that big one. Yeah, we've got a number of dummy rounds and drill shells as well that we have on display. Most of those are down at our motor pool for the uh, different programs. Um, but yeah, really, when I say any and every type of weapon, we have something to represent it. It looks like it. Uh, some, Most of, a good amount of our weapons are First Division provenance, so they were used or owned by First Division soldiers. However, a number of them are, as I mentioned before, type pieces, so they represent, you know, this is the kind of weapon they would have used or they would have went up against just because we don't have, you know, provenance piece yet. We also, in this cabinet, keep all of our awards 
and decorations, um, uh, as well as ID tags or dog tags, uh, rank insignia, unit insignia. So these are World War One, moving into World War Two and Vietnam uh, ID tags. Yeah, these. So all of our cabinets are gasketed. They look like they're homemade. The World War One dog tags. Are the soldiers stamping them themselves, or are they? No, they. Um, it was just more a lot more crude then. But yeah, the uh, uh, the how they attached them around their neck was you know whatever piece of fabric they had was more comfortable before you know World War Two than they had the standardized chain. Uh, but yeah, all of our cabinets kind of create a microclimate to help stabilize and preserve the artifacts. And sometimes, depending on the material, they can off-gas, and there are very distinct smells for certain cabinets. You know, our, our gas mask cabinet that has a lot of the rubber, vulcanized rubber in it, is uh, it's a distinct odor when you open it. So, I don't think the odor is transferring here via audio, but... Um oh, wow, all sorts of various... Pur we got Purple Heart... Bronze star. Yeah, we have medals representing up from you know the bottom all the way up to the top. Purple hearts, bronze stars, silver stars, distinguished service crosses, and then some medal of honors, as I mentioned. Uh, some soldiers were also awarded foreign awards, you know, French, or uh, even in some cases, you know, Soviet, uh, United Nations, English, depending on where they served and when they served. Um, we also have captured awards and decorations. You know, soldiers would pick up German awards or Italian um, and, and bring them back. It's the full gamut. It's everything you can think of, really. They've got it covered here. Should we head outside? Take a look at some of the vehicles. All right, so we're out in um, the tank park of the 1st Division Museum. This um, outdoor display exhibit display area features 11 tanks and one armored personnel carrier so the tanks range in age from the world war one era up into the desert shield desert storm we use these tools to talk to our visitors about um, the overall veteran experience so each tank has a display in front of it which outlines um how many people would ride in it, this tank? How fast would it go? Um, how heavy is this tank? And try to give a little bit more grounding into what these weapons of war were, how they were used, and the overall experience with them. Um, probably our most popular tank out here amongst our visitors is the Tiger tank. And as we approach it, you can see that it has a bright yellow-orange paint to it. Um, and it is painted to look like a tiger. So this is one of the very few um, Korean War depictions that our museum does. So this tank is painted based off some photographs featured. Um, so it is, it is historically painted. Tanks like this were not painted. Um, it's sort of a rare depiction, and it was painted like the tiger for um, there's lore around it exactly why they were painted like the tiger so whether it was to to scare locals or just look super fierce you know we don't really know but we're happy to have it as part of the collection and one of the neat fe features with this tank is um, 
you know, we had to restore, um, repaint the tanks around that 2017 time when we were reopening. Um, believe it or not, there's not tank painting companies on every single corner. Um, so we <laughs> decided as a museum staff to go ahead and recreate the painting ourselves. Um, and funny enough, the entire crew um, that repainted this tank, they were all female. So this tank is often referred to as the tiger tank amongst the public and visitors. But amongst the museum employees, we refer to her as a she because we <laughs> did all the work on this one. <laughs> So um, some of the other tanks featured around here have small displays. They have their unit, um, other markings that the military uses to sort of keep track of their, their vehicles. There's a tank at a distance that you can see a small Snoopy display painted on. Right. Um, and they are pretty bland inside so we cannot let the public go inside the tanks as a part of our contract with TACOM. however we do have the keys and we do need to go in as museum staff to make sure that they are we can do the restoration work to make sure they last here for years um, interestingly enough the apc the m113 from um, the vietnam era has rubber gasketing around it and so when you pop that one open it's as good as new inside and it is a very interesting piece most of the other tanks um, look like they've sat outside for years whereas that one it looks pristine inside so w one day we would hope that we could welcome the visitors in to see that because it is such a unique experience. But right now we can't do that. And this is a really large sort of outdoor space where we're at right here and kind of tanks sort of going in in all sort of directions. And uh, it's kind of arranged sort of chronologically, I think, right? Right. To start so down with World War One over there. Yep. With a, the chronological... Um, um, display and then we also have a creek running through um, our tank park to offer you know a different ambiance and some background noise to our visitors as they come through the tank park like you said your family comes and climbs on the tanks this is a very popular activity for the people in our area and even visitors coming to DuPage County yeah it's a fantastic uh, you know it's really kind of relaxing calm uh, at least today there's not too many people around right so right and somewhat ironic to be in a tank park and use the words relaxing and calm amongst the the, yeah. the weapons of war but the the setting does feature many mature oak trees um, which offer a, a good amount of shade and beauty as you look um, towards the first division museum which is um, just a, a pretty large building with some nice red brick and some cement so it is an attractive space to spend a, a weekend day or yeah yeah uh well we'd like to thank the first division museum uh for a for a wonderful uh, hospitable tour and uh, encourage everyone to come out um you're open every day except monday and uh yeah come out to the cantini museum and yeah. uh Check out their, their website. It's just um, fdmuseum.org. And, yeah, $5 to park during the week. Can't beat that. And then everything else is, is kind of open um, for free to the public. So, um, And they're programming on, online. They advertise the, the things that are available as well as uh, and we... Uh, we're uh, we we're gonna come back and uh, um, maybe do some do some stuff as well for our uh, 
like we did pre-COVID. <laughs> right. One of our more popular programs is the Date with History. So it's virtual now, and it's an online lecture series um, that features all different conflicts and sometimes touches upon the Vietnam conflict. And so we do dive into Vietnam regularly within that series. So I recommend checking out the website fdmuseum.org to hear more about those programs. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantra Kun for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.